Welcome to another episode of Morning Coffee with your host, Rick Alexander. I started this show to talk about all of the interesting, complex, paradoxical, and sometimes uncomfortable aspects of the human experience. If you get anything from this show, the greatest compliment you could give me is to share this show with somebody that you think the message may resonate with or to head to iTunes and give us a five-star review. Additionally, if you want to interact with me, you can follow me at rickalexander underscore on Instagram. Without further ado, on to the show. joined again by Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Mike is, has a PhD in exercise physiology and quite honestly as I was going through your certifications I realized you have more Uh-oh. certifications than books that I've read I think. Uh, yeah it's quite a few. I don't keep up with all of them but yeah. <laughs> yeah well you've been a prominent uh, voice in the fitness industry for a long time. Uh, I remember I mean this was a long time ago probably Three or four years ago, I I started competing in some strongman events, and I would listen to Iron Radio every Sunday morning on my oh, way nice. to like do you know sports specific training my event yeah. training days. Um, so you know one thing that you and I were chatting a little bit about on Instagram, which is why I wanted to have this conversation, is you know, you get in the fitness world and you start to you start to try to understand what are the principles I need to grow, whether you're a coach or whether you're a client. And then something else becomes obvious, at least it did for me, which is that there's far more going on than just the body, right? There's the whole component of how do I, how do I make myself want to train? How do I, how do I get in the right place? And then, you know, once you start training, then there's other theories like the neural governor and, and the ways that your own mindset kind of regulates your performance. So I thought today we could dive into all things mindset. I know that you're a coach and also an avid trainer. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting because I mean, the quick story is when I started training people a long time ago, uh, first guy I had was like, okay, doing nutrition stuff with them is eating like sleeves of Oreo cookies a day. So I'm like, mm-hmm. just stop eating Oreos. Right. I'm like, how hard is this like coaching stuff? And then I had two other co- coaches or two other clients, the same thing. Long story short, it goes on for quite a while. And I realized that, Oh, like you can't just tell other humans what to do and they do it like because it, it it's the quote of like most people probably know to lose weight they should eat less and exercise more right. i remember talking to dr Stu phillips about this and he's like yeah he's like you know telling the average person to to eat less and move more is like telling a depressed person to just have a nice day <laughs> he's like technically you're correct but he's like it's the most ineffective thing to do because they already know that right Mm -hmm. so i realized at that point i was like why am i studying exercise physiology i should be a a psychiatrist or something so i actually went back and started taking uh neurobiology classes because i'm like if i could you know try to figure out a little bit of how your brain is processing the world maybe i can get a little bit more leverage to actually work with people better Right, right. Yeah. And so that's what's interesting, right? Not only can you not tell other people what to do with their bodies, but most of us can't actually tell ourselves what to do with exactly. our bodies. <laughs> and so we, it, we, you know, we treat our, we have an interesting view in Western culture, like we, we tend to treat our bodies like machines. Um, but then when it really comes down to it, that's actually like the last thing that's actually possible for us. Um, so for me, I started really trying to understand well, what, what are the psychological concepts that are in play here? And even just starting to bring awareness around what is the idea of resistance? What, what creates psychological resistance between, you know, what is it that's actually standing between me and where I want to be? Because it's obviously nothing physical in the world. Um, and, and that's the direction that I went. I'd love to hear a bit about what, what neurobiology is, what, what is that lens and, and what does it give you? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I got from, because at the time looking at psychology, I, I couldn't figure out how it was applicable to what I was doing. And I think part of it was my own mindset at the time, you know, I'm like, well, I got to know, like, how do the systems work? How does the physiology work? That was just more where my brain was at at that point it's not to say that psychology isn't useful at all Mm -hmm. um and so i kind of more focused on like how 
stuff like memory and how do we even take and process. So a simple example I use is, you know, don't think of a pink elephant, right? You're like, oh shit, I just thought of a pink elephant, right? So we tell someone and we cognitively understand that, oh yeah, I'm not supposed to think of this pink elephant, but yet we process most of the stuff visually through like a visual basis, mm-hmm. right? So another question, it's a video podcast, but I could ask you, um, like how tall do you think the windows are in your living room? What would you say? The windows in my living room? Yeah. Probably three feet. Okay. How did you figure that out? Well, I just pictured it in my head and I exactly was right. Yeah. And you do an estimate, right? Okay. I'm standing here. I know this is about about six feet tall, whatever. So the brain stores a lot of these things visually. And Mm. it's not because like a computer would have to have a data entry point for each and every question that would ever be asked. But it's more efficient if you just go, okay, I have this picture of my living room. You could ask me any question about it, and I could picture myself there and probably give you some reasonable answer. So it's kind of like an efficiency thing. So then I realized I'm like, oh, okay. And then other parts like memory. So memory, every time you access a memory, you actually slightly change the memory, right? And there's some super interesting studies on that from like, you know, witness accounts being, you know, horribly inaccurate at the time and being recalled later. And even other stuff like information, there's an old study and I can't remember who did it, but they gave uh, physicians uh, information. They said, okay, this is incomplete information and it's a fake patient and we want you to make a diagnosis. So they do that, give us to all these docs and they say, okay, how confident on a one to 10 scale are you of your decision? Like, I don't know, it was incomplete data, like a six. Okay, cool. But then they didn't tell them, they came back and they said, okay, hey, we got more information on these patients. Do you want more information? Like everybody said, yes. And then they said, okay, does this actually change your diagnoses now? Most of them said no. And they said, okay, now that you have more information, how confident are you in your answer? Most of them were extremely confident in their answer. So I'm like, well, that's crazy. Like they got more information, but they did not change their opinion. So the new info didn't change how they thought, but yet now, because they had more information, even though it didn't change anything, they feel more confident in their answer that they didn't change. You're like, ah, (laughs) yeah, right. That's the human psyche, right? Like, exactly. I'm just thinking about pop culture, like how many of us like refuse to change our opinion as new information becomes available. Yeah, it's literally, and you see this happen, right? You see people then in arguments when they present with more data that may even go against what they think, the rational person would go, oh, okay, let me look at this. Let me come back. Most humans go, no, I know I'm completely right on this thing. Um, Dan Arley had a whole book called uh, Predictably Irrational, that the irrational things that humans do, it's very predictable, Mm. which is to me, just kind of fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And I wonder, right. So I'm thinking in the psychology space, I wonder how much of that is like persona protection. You know, we have these sort of unconscious, um, these unconscious biases that are sort of allow us to keep the picture of who we think that we are or who we, who we want the world to know us as. And, and so I think part of the struggle here is actually that that you'll most likely do this sort of unconsciously until you really start to try to you know unless you unless you're somebody that really is really interested in the truth more than your opinion which isn't most people i don't think yeah and that even goes back to the whole thing of like identity you know like what is your identity right and we see this all the time in fitness right so Joe Bob gets super popular for promoting the fast keto diet or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Now their identity and their success and all the neurologic associations that go with it are tied to this fast keto diet for Mm -hmm. weight loss, right? I'm just making this up. And perhaps money too. And money, their whole, it becomes part of their identity. So even with the new data being presented, it's not super advantageous for them to switch. Right. And if you do, then how do you fix that sort of story in your head of why you changed, as opposed to if your identity is someone who's looking for the most effective weight loss technique, right? Then you're already a little bit more open to new ideas because your identity isn't the particular thing. So I think 
that kind of plays into it to a high degree too. Right, right. And now where our identities are sort of blasted online, right? There's like a right. there's a whole facade now that we have to kind of keep up even if even if new information is it, we are our opinions are evolving, which is something I've actually always had a little bit of trouble with in this space specifically because I'm just down to be like, oh, that whole book I wrote wasn't that good, you know, or, or I've changed my mind on a lot of that. And it's like, it's kind of hard to create a business on on that model, you know? Um, and I think yeah. that's something science gives us, right? It's like that's that's the real value of the scientific method, I think. Yeah, I think of the scientific method, but then we sometimes forget that humans do science, right? So mm -hmm. like I've had conversations with particular people and it's interesting for a particular topic. They're like, no, no, that's, that's not really not true. And then they do like, no, you can't say that that's only based on four studies, human studies. We need more data. We need more data, which you can always say that. Mm -hmm. And then said researcher runs a on, on that particular topic. And now they're convinced that this is definitely the thing. It's like, okay, but you just said we need four or five, six, seven studies, but this is only one study. And then they get mad at you because it's a bias because it's their own study. Right. right. So I think that it's, yeah. And then you open it up to the biohacker, biohacker world and there's an N of one, and oh. then we're, you know, now it's, yeah. now it's completely uh, biased. Yeah. Peeve of like, I have no problem with anyone saying, okay, it was an end of one. I did this. It worked for me. Cool. No one's going to argue with you. You found whatever you found. That's awesome. I have an issue when they're like, oh, it worked for me. It'll work for you too. And it's not based on any other data. I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Like that's a, that's a massive jump you made there from a, a single day, <laughs> a single right. data point. <laughs> right. Once your bias becomes prescriptive for multiple people. So, right. you know, I'm interested in this idea of identity and memories because I think, so if I understand it correctly, when you remember something, you're actually remembering the last time that you remembered it, not the event right. itself. Is that right? Yeah. So that's yeah, interesting. like the last form of it. Right. So it's just copies of copies of copies, which you can, I mean, you can, uh, you know, I've even seen studies that you can actually just lie to yourself. Like you could tell the same story over and over and, and create that memory, so to speak, in your mind. Yeah. Now, I'm also wondering about how many of us, though, create, we like catalyze our identity around memories, right? Like especially yep. negative ones that are like really strong where maybe we didn't show up for ourselves. And and so that becomes such a significant portion of our identity and it has nothing to do with the present or the future. And, and I just wonder to what degree that holds us back, um, especially when you get into uh, like the fitness space, right? When you, when you start to think about the, the way in which you see yourself as somebody that's a performer or as somebody that's consistent or as, you know, whatever it is, whatever your picture is, but oftentimes our identities are catalyzed around these memories that are, I mean, to be quite honest, it sounds like not relevant at all. Yeah. And then you have the further issue of the analogy I use of if you had ever got like bubble gum as a kid stuck in your hair, like the last thing you want to do is like mess around with it and like get it stuck to everything. But like memories are kind of that way, just like because your brain can't take new information in without really associating it to something. Right, literally neurons connect to each other, they're associated to each other. Mm -hmm. And so if you have, let's say, quote, a negative memory, and then you're re-accessing that in different environments under different conditions, you are literally taking that piece of bubble gum and like jamming it in your hair and like getting it all super messy. Right. You're creating more and more associations with it, which is actually making it more prominent. And then to your point, on something that may not even be true. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Or, or, I mean, at best, you're only telling one perspective of it. Exactly. You're only telling yes. your own, right? Yeah. Um, so interesting. Biased. Yeah, it's so interesting. That was actually one of the things the Buddha said is he was like, you know, you're actually completely free in every moment to make a new choice, but you're so conditioned by your past that, you know, essentially you're, you're in a prison so complete that, that you think you're free. Yes. So interesting. Yeah. And, you know, as a side note, that's what, you know, in terms of psychedelics and therapy, that's what one of the proposed benefits is, 
I don't remember if it was Roger Carhart Harris or someone who was saying that it's imagine like you're at the top of a ski slope and you keep going down the same rut all Michael the time. Michael Pollan, yeah. Michael Pollan, yeah. And he's like, now imagine you got like three feet of fresh powder. It's super easy to pick another path, right? And I think a lot of times we get so conditioned to just stay in that same rut because that is the most efficient path. That may not be the best path, but it's the most efficient one. So, so what's happening here? Are we just, is it strengthening neural pathways or like what's happening when, when we are in a rut, so to speak, it's probably the perfect, you know, analogy for that, for what you just said, we're in a rut. Maybe it's really difficult to um, get to the gym consistently or something. Is that a, is that a neural pathway that's actually been strengthened or how would you articulate that? Yeah, that's, that's how I would view it. Um, you know, everything is kind of a skill, you know, like Pavel Sotsalin said, you know, strength is a skill. And you could argue that everything is kind of sort of a skill. Mm. And your brain is set up that whenever you do something consistently, it wants to make that more efficient, right? So a good habit is just something that we do all the time. And, you know, hopefully it serves us, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But it's literally just an efficiency. So the more you keep running those specific pathways, you add more myelin to it, and they just become more and more efficient. So I think one of the sort of governing principles of physiology is that your body is almost always going to pick the path that's the most efficient, and it's going to set things up to be more efficient over time. So whatever you're doing, you're probably just going to get more efficient at it. You're going to have more associations with it. That may or like a good habit versus a bad habit that may or may not be serving you the best, right? So the gym example. So if you haven't been to the gym in the past year, you have a habit of not going to the gym, right? So like one of the things I've done, I can't remember who I got this from is your goal this week, Bob, is just go to the gym. Like, don't even bring a change of clothes. I don't even care what you can sit there and watch TV for all I care. Mm -hmm. Like go to the gym, check in and leave. And like when I first started coaching, I used to have people be like, send me a photo of you at the front desk with the person there. And then you can go home. Like what? This is this stupid. Like you're, you're paying me a lot of money and I'm, you're just telling me to go to the gym. Yes. How often have you been to the gym in the past year? Well, I never made it there once. Great. You already did more progress than you did, <laughs> you did all of last year. <laughs> right. But we want to skip ahead to the, the next biggest step. But unfortunately, that's a little bit outside of our current capacity. Or if nothing else, it's very hard to do that because we're very efficient at doing the opposite thing. Right. So it's the idea when we talk about efficiency, is it to make a new decision to create a new habit, do something new, just requires more mental work. And that's why it's not efficient, efficient, whatever you've done. Yeah. And you get into conscious versus subconscious, right? Mm -hmm. Most of I think what we're running is, is subconscious sort of decisions we made, because it's an efficiency thing, right? I mean, can you imagine if you had to consciously do all the things your body does? We'd all be dead, right? Oops, forgot to breathe. Ah, damn, that guy didn't make it. Right. You know, right. so it it's it's a good thing to make things unconscious, to make them into habits, to make them more efficient. Uh, we get the choice, like you said, to kind of what are we gonna do? And then when we do something that's different, it's like trying to get out of that rut to pick a different path. It's gonna feel hard, it's not gonna feel as good it's going to take you know more effort more consistency normally we need awareness to even realize we were stuck in a rut before to even do it right yeah so that that's interesting this these efficiency theories are like i'm thinking of social efficiency theory where mm. we essentially create it, it's not talked about as much anymore in psychology but essentially we create a picture of who who that i know who mike is and so i don't i just project that image onto you so i don't have to think about it i don't have to pay attention to your nuances i don't have to watch like actually watch you evolve and then where that hurts is you know when we're trying to evolve or like but we're you know we're, someone's projecting the same picture on you kind of like brings you back down to where where you were what's interesting is these things can also it seems like work for us right so mm -hmm. what i'm thinking about is because we have this ability to learn a pattern and then make that pattern autonomic or subconscious in some way um really it's a matter of like okay well who do i want to be in the world what do i want to get to what do i want to where do i want to be and then making those the habits that are uh subconscious right and, and then yeah. and that now it's actually working for us 
Yeah. And that, that process can be much longer, I think, than what people realize, right? The mm. old myth that still hasn't died is, oh, it just takes 21 days to change a habit. It's like, no, it's incredibly variable, depends upon what you're doing. Uh, so like some of the studies on for someone to be considered a lifelong exerciser, meaning someone who no matter what, they may have a few times off, but they're going to exercise as just a part of their life. It's part of their identity of what they are. Most of the data says you have to do it consistently for almost two years. Mm-hmm. You know, so on one hand, we're like, holy shit, that's a longer than 21 days. On the other hand, two years out of your entire lifetime, percentage-wise, that's that's really not that much, probably a good investment of time. Um, but again, it's not something that people are going to run around and go, yep, two-year contract with me, you'll be a lifelong exerciser. It's like, oh God, that sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of mental effort getting over that initial right. hump is what you're saying. And you're saying that that's two years. It appears to be two years. I mean, the research is is kind of debatable on that. Even the research on how long it takes habit change, I think, is more variable than what we realize. But it's not as simple as the 21-day theory. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, It's really funny. When I was, I think I was like 19 or 20, 19 or 20, um, I I know I couldn't drink yet, so I was pretty bored. And I (laughs) was in the military, and I got myself addicted to chew to see what it was like to quit. Mm. And so I I chewed every day for about eight months, and then I quit. And I mean, it was even a year after that, I would still feel the cravings. It was Mm. very interesting. So yeah, that 21-day garbage is like (laughs) out the door instantly. Um, Yeah, so I'm wondering in this... So let's, we could focus on the the hump then, right? Because mm-hmm. I think that's where, you know, that's where the majority of us, when we're thinking about growth work, are, are focused. And I always tell my, you know, people in my courses this, like, you know, you're whatever, how old are you? 30, 40 years old, like 30, 40 years of patterning. So like, mm-hmm. to think you're going to be able to change that in a 12-week course is, is absolutely unrealistic. But what can you do, right? What What are the practices that can start pushing you through that hump? And one of the things I'd like to touch on and see what your thoughts are, because we mentioned this idea of we vi- we're such visual creatures. Visualization. Have you ever heard of cy- psycho cybernetics? You ever heard yeah. that book? Yeah, so yeah. I think now we're getting into some real pseudo social science. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things that I personally do in my life, I heard Mike Bledsoe talk about this one time and, and I onboarded it. Essentially, whenever I hear something that's interesting, well, for 30 days, I act as if it's true and like mm-hmm. as if I believe it. And then I'll see, like, try to like, is this helping my life? Psycho-cybernetics is actually one of the things that I did. And I actually felt as though maybe just the subjective sense of this is moving me somewhere. But the idea being that you've got a picture of who you are in your head and your physiology comes into alignment in some way with that picture. And so then my question for you is, do you, what do you feel about we're in this hump where we're trying to create new habits what about the idea of taking some time to consciously visualize who I am in these new habits as a way of gaining a bit of momentum when it's when it can be tough to change? Yeah, I mean, I think if you would have asked me, even like three years ago, I would have said, Oh, it's the BJ Fogg thing. It's, you know, small, tiny habits and just make, you know, small, infinite, you know, progress each day and do your reps. And I think all that's still true. I don't I don't think that it's not true, but I've always been stuck by like, okay, how come some people like my dad, you know, smoked for many, many years. All of a sudden he tried to quit multiple times, couldn't. And then one day he just got really sick and he stopped smoking, never smoked again for like 40, 40 years. I'm like, how did he just wake up one day? Granted, he got sick, but he had been sick before too. And that didn't scare him bad enough. Mm-hmm. Like, how do people all of a sudden just go, ooh, and they change like 180 degrees? Uh, James Fell had a really good book. He called it the the holy shit moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. So for people, I'm like, yeah, if you buy just like um, BJ Fogg's book, um, Atomic Habits also, which is also a really good one, similar idea. And then like the holy shit moment, you kind of have like your, the breath of the decision-making process, I guess you could say, or how would you change? from one end to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, now I would say similar to what you were saying is, I think if you can change the I- identity, and James Clare talks about this too, that that's gonna be the fastest route, right? So my good buddy Adam Glass had a good line w- once. He's like, 
Well, if you're trying to get leaner, just ask yourself, well, what would a lean person do? Mm. Right. Which gets back to an awareness and sort of changing identity. So I, I think changing identity is the fastest way. And so I agree. I think some type of visualization, like picturing yourself as that person in the future. So one thing I'll do and have some clients do is I used to write down specific goals. Now I'll write down, I am someone who does blah, 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 blah. Mm. Right. So I'm patterning it as an identity because I think that is kind of the core thing. And if you change that, now you have to be careful what you change it to. But I think if you change that, I think all the other decisions kind of flow downstream from there. Yeah, I that's so interesting. I that kind of hit me like there, it's it's starting to flatten out. But there's a time where the idea of like biohacking and um, like habits, like these high performance habits and, and success mm-hmm. habits really exploded. And I was trying to get my mind around like, cause I, I would do them, especially I'm thinking of myself like seven or eight years ago, you know, I would do them for a while and they would fall off. And it just kind of hit me one time of like, it, the habit means nothing at all. It's like, becoming the person that does the habit is what matters. Yes. Um, I mean, certain <laughs> habits are going to be better for certain people, depending on your psychological sure. makeup. But like, to your point, yeah, I think it's it's identity as that person. Now, have you heard of, and I don't know if you just mentioned him, but have you heard of the, I can't remember his name right now, the guy that talks about creating an alter ego? I don't think so. So he works with Olympic athletes and and the like and and kind of helps them create an identity of the person like what are the qualities and characteristics of the person the persona that is competing um Mm. so that they have like an instant sort of switch to get in the right mindset i think it's really interesting and i think it probably works at first um that's my my sense of it and the only reason i'm saying that is because something happens when you only manipulate the ego, which is you create a sort of shadow aspect. You, there's a bunch that you're not sure. paying attention to that sort of gets pushed outside of your awareness. And I just wonder, you know, again, treating the psychology like it's a machine, just like treating the your physiology like it's a machine. There's got to be some kickback somewhere. I would think so, right? Because even like you're asking about like a shadow or a cost, right? So look at high level Olympic athletes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, at some point, your ego and your identity has to be, you know, I'm Michael Phelps, I win gold medals, or it has to be at a very high level, or you're just never going to do genetic gifts aside, you're just never going to do all the work to get there. Totally, there's but a then, level of ego strength. Yeah, right. But then what happens when you're no longer that, right? So I think of even like, like bodybuilding, right? You go from like, I always think of like Dorian Yates, right? Going from, you know, one of the best in the world to now I'm not competing anymore, you know, and to to see the amount of people who have been at a high level who can transition out of that. Ooh, it's, there's not, I think Dorian did it well, but there's, man, you see a lot of train wrecks. (laughs) You do. Or what you also see is people trying to hold on to that persona yes. and they become a bit of a caricature of themselves. Um, yes. thinking of like Ric Flair, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like can't let the limelight go and then just molds into this kind of used to be version of yourself. It, it's weird. Um, and then that, that gets into the process and into my mind, at least to, to what I like to think about and study is the idea of an ego death, Mm -hmm. um, going through something that forces all of your, you know, and I, I, I wonder what's happening neurologically when, when the proverbial ego death happens, but your locus of identity gets essentially dismantled. And that's what I think Michael Pollan was talking about in Mm -hmm. that moment where all of a sudden the, you look at the hill and it's completely smooth and you have this moment. And this is what happened to me. Like I felt, I, I felt very, um, I don't know. I was just in a bad place. I think at the end of my military career, I felt very like stuck in structures that weren't working for me and I didn't know how to get out. Um, and I did, and I had took a, a three gram dose of psilocybin and that was the, 
that was the exact realization I had, which is, oh, I can go anywhere. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> um, and that kind of gets into entropy. Like, are you familiar mm -hmm. with the entropic brain theory? And do you yes. have any opinions on it? Super fascinating. To me, I mean, again, I'm not, I wouldn't say psychology is a strong point, but to me, that theory makes the most sense out of any other theories. And it also fits my personal bias because I was using uh, the math of sample entropy to apply to fine scale variability in physiologic systems. Um, so to me, it, it makes sense that we're looking at a, a spectrum of entropy and not you have this disease and this disease and that disease and this thing and that, but they're all from your brain. So if we have a better idea of how your brain is working and we look at it from different degrees of entropy, at least to to me and my biases, that makes a lot more sense. Right. So so for the listener, let's talk about that just for a moment, because I think some people have heard of, especially in psychedelic research, it seems to be that the, the entropic brain theory is becoming more um, prominent. But it's the idea that your default mode network essentially dampers entropy so that you can go about your everyday tasks, right? So you don't have to wade mm -hmm. through chaos to to go to the car and drive and get lunch or do whatever you like go to work stuff like that um yeah and so when we talk about high entropy we're talking about less defined patterning right we're talking about more more openness more chaotic yep is that right right yeah. and so and so the idea being then that you can expose yourself to things that increase the entropy and i've often heard people talking about like people that are going through depressive episodes and things like that in in such that they're essentially experiencing such a low entropy that although they have options, they can't see them, which is why, like you said, telling a depressed person, well, just have a good day, you know, just be happier. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's not that it's not possible. It's that they don't, for some reason, something in their mind isn't allowing them to think that it's possible. Right. And so that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, it, and it also kind of explains like everything from OCD to creativity, right? You're just getting pushed maybe too far into the spectrum. And I don't think any end, like most things of physiology, if you probably want the flexibility to go from this end to this end, but if you start getting really far in the extremes, eek, you know, watch out, there's going to be a big cost associated with that, right? So you think in, in science, right? The, the people, you know, Watson and Crick who came up with how do you visualize, you know, DNA. That's one guy was doing LSD and he thought of it, right? So maybe sometimes you need things to promote more entropy to have thoughts you didn't have before. And it doesn't mean you have to do drugs, but there's other ways you can do it. But if you stay in one area a little bit too much, you may be, I think, kind of missing out on other capabilities too. So you want to effectively transition, but you don't want to get too far to the ends and you don't want to get stuck on one of the ends either. Right, right. And so you talk a bit, you have a metabolic flexibility uh, yeah. cert, and you've been talking a little bit recently about physiological flexibility. And if we're talking about not migrating from sort of the OCD end of the low entropy spectrum to high openness, uh, that seems to me probably what psychological flexibility is. Yep, same right? idea. Yeah, right. the ability exactly. to so, navigate these different terrains. Yeah, and that's, I always look for probably because I'm a systems person, like what are the principles that we can explain multiple different domains and the principle still works, right? So like the idea of like a barbell, right? Okay, yeah, you can use fat metabolism here, carbohydrate metabolism here, but if you're stuck 100% in fat metabolism, oh boy, your blood glucose is gonna go squirrely after a couple of rice cakes, right? If you're stuck 100% in carbohydrate metabolism, you know, fasting is gonna suck really bad. You're probably gonna get hangry between meals. Right, mm -hmm. so metabolic flexibility can use both ends of the spectrum when you need to at the right time. You know, physiologic flexibility, same idea, just across different systems. Psychologic flexibility, same idea. Can you go from one end to the other end? Can you be very focused on a task you have to do? And then can you go do something that's also more creative on the other end of the spectrum? Can you kind of self-regulate yourself back and forth between the two ends? And I think those are also markers of health. How far can you push the ends and then how fast can you transition between them? Yeah, right. And then how, if I could push it even further, can yeah. you focus on a certain task and then find out that that task is 
doesn't matter anymore. Right. Right. Like the Zen <laughs> idea that you're just building yeah. a garden to erase let it. Let it go. Right? To let it go. Right? <laughs> um, because I, I mean, I'm just thinking about the world today, like how many, how much suffering has been caused of us trying to hold on to an older identity, you know, uh, through the pandemic and things like that, like trying to go back to what was losing that ability to just pivot and, and recreate structures of meaning for yourself. Right. Yeah. To me, that's a lack of flexibility and it's getting stuck in one area, right? Mm. It's, it's good to visit all areas, but you probably don't want to be stuck in one particular area all the time. So I think you're going to start having escalating costs that are going to be associated with that. Totally. Yes. A hundred percent. I agree. So I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm thinking out loud, so I haven't really thought about this, but you know, for a long time in the military, I'm sort of operating in these places where lower entropy is really helpful, right? You're, it's mm-hmm. a lot of sort of just task management. Um, and I would find that I would go through periods where my mental state wasn't great, though I was sort of getting the job done. But then I would do something like run 240 miles in body armor. And <laughs> then I would, you know, and then, you know, then you're exhausted and you have to recover and all of that. But like a couple of days after you've slept a couple of times and things are starting to like return to normal, it, I always had this sense that I had a completely new sort of lease on my life. Mm. And I wonder to what degree I'm, I'm sort of playing with that entropy or, or what, what that exhaustion is doing to us and why exhaustion was used in these rites of passage rituals, which were meant to, to sort of annihilate the ego. Yeah, I think annihilate is a perfect word, right? Because my bias is, and you can tell me what your thoughts are, that if you're stuck maybe on that end of just task execution mm-hmm. and you've been stuck there for a while, my guess is to get out, you're probably going to take an extreme measure, right? Running 240 miles in body armor, I'd say is pretty extreme, mm-hmm. right? Or even people who decide to do extremely high dose of psychedelics to start or get up and move their family cross country to start another job. Or usually what I've seen anecdotally as an outside observer is they they don't know how to moderate and they know that they're stuck. And so their brain, the only way out of getting stuck is just to blow the whole thing up with something extreme. And that can definitely, I think, work for sure. And I think once you're also very fatigued, you just don't have the capacity. It's harder to go back into those ruts, right? It's just a way of altering your consciousness to such a high degree that you're going to start picking different paths, I think, too. Yeah, right. And I think you're exactly right on that. I think that's exactly what happens. And it does work right up until you like, want to create some semblance of stability in your life. Right. right? <laughs> and like, Uh-oh, I'm back here again. Oh, what, what, what can I do now? <laughs> right. I remember I had been dating Danielle for like eight months or something. And I was like, hey, uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's August. I'm like, hey, in November, I'm going to ride my bike from Maine to Florida. Uh, and it'll be Maine to North Carolina. But like, for me, it's just, oh, I'm in a rut. Let me just exactly do something extreme, push myself way outside of my capacity, put my back against the wall in some weird place. Like I guarantee it'll work. And so it does work. Um, and then there comes the time where like, how do I, how do I get myself out of these states that aren't serving me and also keep a job and have a relationship and a family and stuff. And so that kind of lands us right back at the beginning, which is the person that's sort of stuck in these ruts that whose habits aren't leading to the kind of person that they want to be or to their goals. Like what are the small things? I think, um, I think this is something too, you could tell me if I'm wrong, where state management might really help like getting in cold water and doing breath work and stuff. And I'd be happy to, or interested to see what you think about that. Yeah, because so I've always been thinking like you can, you can definitely do like what I call like the nuclear approach, right? You can just drop a bomb on your entire life and whether that'll change a whole bunch of shit really fast, right? Now, you may have to play around with the cost and the aftermath of it, but it'll definitely work, right? And usually you find people who will only change once they absolutely have to change. And then it's a very radical change like 180 degrees the other route 
mm-hmm. um, even personalities. Like I, I find some people, I equate them as uh, some good friends of mine are very good at going in straight lines and going really fast, right? They're really good at getting a whole bunch of stuff done. And they're really good at execution, but creativity, change of direction, not so good. And if a wall shows up, they're going to, they'll just impale themselves right into it. Hmm. Right? And you've got other people that are almost the other extreme where they couldn't get anything done if their life depended upon it. Cause they're going here, they're there, they're just, you know, all over the map. So it's like, can you kind of be somewhere in the middle with that? And I think that if you can modulate your own state, I think that gives you an insight and a window into more like the missile that's off course most of the time like getting you practice at those micro adjustments to kind of stay where you need to go because that fine scale variability is just, it's it part of the system and we still want that, but we're not really told how to ever regulate our state, right? So if I take someone and they come here and I've got a freezer full of, you know, 45 degree cold water, can I stick them in there for 30 seconds and can they manage their state? Can I impart a little bit of relatively high stress to the system, but control the duration, and then just watch how they respond. And then can we kind of titrate that up a little bit? Okay, 30 seconds was good. You got control of your breathing. And by the end, great. Now we can make the water a little colder. We could go again with frequency. We could go a little longer. Then can you get control of your state sooner, right? So I think those slight things we can do to practice those insults uh, are beneficial. And then also we're building up sort of the the mental muscle of working our prefrontal cortex over our limbic system, right? The prefrontal cortex, the more professor thinky part of the brain versus the more limbic you know, reptilian part of the brain, mm-hmm. right? Cause little reptilian part of your brain is like cold water. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. You could die going into cold water. Right. And that's actually true, right? We're wired for survival. However, if you do it in a you know, controlled environment, the safety envelope of cold water exposure is actually quite large. As long as you're not an idiot, (laughs) Um, you can then say, okay, yep. I understand that. I gotcha. I hear it, but I'm going to do this thing in a controlled manner. And the interesting part about the cold that you've experienced too, is that it never really feels any easier. Like it it gets, you can get better at controlling your, your state and your response. But I mean, I did it almost every day for a year and a half at one point. It still sucked when I get like year and a half, like the first day going out again, I'm like, I never really looked forward to it. I had to kind of reward myself with, okay, it's going to feel better later. And I'm actively choosing to do the hard thing and that's going to be okay. So I think getting those small exposures and those small practices, I think is a skill that again, you can develop and become more efficient at over time. Yeah, totally. So like in my selection in the military, we were in cold water a lot constantly, <laughs> right? And and then I remember this is just maybe a couple of years ago, I'd been in for 12 years, got out and, and was at this retreat thing and we were jumping in the cold water and I was like, I hate this, you know, and people are like, <laughs> you did this every day. I'm like, I don't know how. It's terrible, you know? Um, So yeah, it doesn't get easier. I'm wondering, do you see a transferability from, so you get into the the cold tank and you practice regulating your own state. And then when you find yourself in a position in life where your state is, is, you know, where your nervous system is reacting to something in the world, is there a transferability to being able to regulate your nervous system then elsewhere? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I think so because too. it's it's a skill set, right? A buddy of mine, Frankie Ferry, said that the best way to regulate our nervous system is probably some biochemical solution, biomechanics, and you know, biopsych. It's probably in one of those three areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more tools and more optionality you have, and a skill set that you've developed managing your state by using those three main uh, levers, again, it's a skill set you can then deploy somewhere else. Right. So if you get better at nasal breathing, when you get into cold water under a stressful situation, then that'll transfer. So like when I was kiteboarding a couple of years ago, we're down in Mexico, I hadn't kiteboarded in a lot of waves and buddy of mine's like, oh yeah, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, boss, go out in the middle of the waves. And you know, they weren't real tall, but they're you know six, seven feet over my head Ooh. and they were all 
complete mishmash, like no pattern to it whatsoever. And I got out there and I just started almost like freaking hyperventilating, you know, in the middle of it. Uh-huh. And all I had to do for a while is like, okay, I don't know how far I'm going to go down. I don't really know how far away I'm going to go from shore, but I just need to get control of my breath first. So I just need to get control of my state and then I'll figure out what to do. Or I think totally. in the past, I would have flipped it the other way. I would have been freaking out the entire time about what to do. And when you're in that high level state, especially if you haven't experienced it before, like it's really hard to think straight. You're probably not going to (laughs) make the best decision at that point. Right. So yeah. Panic's not going to get you home. No. Um, It's funny. I think there's a lot of triathletes that I don't train. um, I have one client. I don't train many endurance athletes anymore, Um, but training triathletes, it's always something that I always try to prepare them for ahead of time that most people don't think about, which is that group swim at the beginning when everybody's kicking and splashing, like people's nervous systems run away from them so quick in those environments where they haven't um, had access to it. And so, I mean, to bring this conversation full circle, I think some of these things like state management, um, nasal breathing, these are actually great, uh, great ways to train quote unquote mental toughness without beating the shit out of your body. I think one of the reasons I actually started nasal breathing had nothing to do with physiology. I just heard um, Brian McKenzie talking about how he programmed an hour max Cal air bike nasal breathing only for James Newberry. And I was like, oh, I just want to try that, you know, and it was a terrible kick in the balls. (laughs) Um, And so like, you know, anything that you can, that's almost going to like, downregulate the system or maybe that's not the right way but but create less impact um is a great way to train the mentality piece of it right not not really talking about the person that's having trouble creating the habit but more the person that like is looking for ways to build more mental toughness into their programming um nasal breathing is a great way to do that yeah and that's how i started doing it too probably man four or five years ago now I had a bunch of, uh, you know, relatively high level CrossFit, but they weren't like super high level. And the hardest part with training them was like, they were so used to just beating the shit out of themselves every day. Right. Again, talking about your brain, your brain got rewired to that sense of fatigue. And that was what they were training for. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, no, like if you, you, you can get okay, but you've plateaued. Right. So we started monitoring their performance. Their performance was going down. You know, it's like, yeah, I can take you and hit you with a baseball bat and you're going to be sore tomorrow, but I didn't make your training any better, <laughs> right. right? It's the old, the Mel Sif line of, you know, any monkey can make you sweat, you know, to make it hard. That's, that's pretty easy to do. Um, some training that's intelligent may be hard and that's part of the deal, but right. so I'm like thinking I'm scratching my head going, okay, how do I get these people to do something that's hard, but may actually improve their thing they need to improve, but doesn't really beat the crap out of them and doesn't risk injury. So I said, okay, boy, let's, you're going to do a 5k on the rower. We're going to time it and you can only breathe through your nose. And they're like, okay, whatever. So the guy comes back. He's like, holy shit, that's really hard. I'm like, yeah, his max heart rate was only 120. And his normal max heart rate could easily hit 185, 190. Mm. Um, and he's like, yeah, it felt like I was drowning in air. <laughs> yeah. And especially if you're not accustomed to it, I'm like, brilliant. I'm like, because it, it felt hard. It got him to do more moderate aerobic stuff. But because it felt hard, he was bought into doing it and now was doing something that was actually making him a better athlete. And so then I started down the rabbit hole of, you know, Patrick McKenzie stuff or McEwen stuff and Brian stuff. And, right. you know, looking at it from there. Right, right. So I really want to, man, there's two, two ways I wanted to take this. Um, one, I just want to see what your thought is like for people that are more novelty seeking hedonistic, or maybe just stuck in sort of dopaminergic pathways, because sometimes, you know, people's habits are actually, they're really just their neurochemistry is just hijacked by these dopaminergic mm-hmm. pathways. And so they're being motivated to behavior that, that, perhaps makes them doesn't feel like it's serving them. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about sort of changing using things like a 30 minutes nasal breathing on the air bike or, or even a cold shower to change your state when you feel that that dopamine is motivating you towards something that you don't want to do. Yeah, I think it's two things. I think 
those are really good as a pattern interrupt to pattern do interrupt, right. something else, like to, to go move. Um, but I think they also have the benefit of training your prefrontal cortex to override your limbic system. Mm. And this sounds a little bit like conspiratory, but marketers, social media, we're getting pretty damn good at targeting your little reptilian brain because it's relatively predictable. All humans are wired for survival. It's going to be similar characteristics. And unfortunately, I think that's just going to get worse, right? So, you know, whether it's fast food or, you know, scrolling through Facebook, whatever it is, right? It's going to get better and better. And if you don't have a skill set to opt out of that and then have the awareness to realize you're going down that path, I think it's going to be much, much harder for you to do an actual state change instead of, it's like with clients, I'll ask them, I said, oh, so what do you do in transitions? Like you said, okay, you get up in the morning and then you were going to go do some, some rowing. You have a rower in your garage, but it didn't happen. Like what, what happened? Like walk me through that morning. You know, and it's like, oh, you know, I had to go to work and I know I was checking Facebook and so I ended up scrolling for 10 minutes and then realized I was going to be late for work. So I didn't have time to do the rower. Mm. And so just even awareness of pointing out like things they're doing. But then I'll also ask them, it's okay, so you're on Facebook for 10 minutes. Did you feel better after? Did the thing you were doing to try to alter your state, did it actually work, right? The, the Dr. Phil thing, how's that working for you? Right. And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, it part of it again is education, awareness, and then I think building up the skill of picking the harder thing to override those things, and then like the tiny habits, like setting things up. So, okay, maybe you don't turn your phone on until after you've done the rower, right? Or you you check Facebook but set a timer. Okay, have it opt out and close at ten minutes, and then nine minutes, and then eight minutes. Right. right? So I think all these things can can work, but I do get more nervous because these things are, are not commonly taught, right? So how do you even change your state isn't taught. And if you don't have a skill set and you're not actively working on it, it's very easy to default to things that everybody else wants you to do that probably aren't going to be the best long-term for you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're going to end up at the end of everybody else's agenda. And yes. it's so interesting. Like I was walking through the airport, actually coming back from Costa Rica in January. And I just remember thinking like, uh, you know, I'm like reading all of these signs and I just feel awful about myself. You know, <laughs> every sign is like, you're not, you're not good, but you could be like, come over here. You're not complete, but you could be. And it's just like, man, this is, uh, this is terrible. We're like the profit motive is just, wrecking people's mental health, I think, in ways that we don't aren't quite familiar with. Um, okay, so so we're coming up on an hour here. And this is the worst segue of all time. But what is your thought? <laughs> what is your thought? I just had some stuff I wanted to get to yeah, yeah, no How many good, man. thoughts on the neural governor? And, and do you? What do you it seems to be theory? Um, and, and so yeah. the idea that you can sort of train, you can increase the intensity at which you work out. So there's like a physiological limit and then also perhaps a neurological or mental limit. Um, and so you're as a athlete that's trying to get better at something, you're, you're sort of playing with both of those things at one time, because the idea of the neural governor is that you could probably get more out of your physiology if you if you were trained to go there if you could get yourself there yeah it's so like the tim noakes essential governor theory correct essential governor theory yeah, yeah. it's super interesting because i read his stuff years ago and the thing that where he really caught me was he's like okay so if this is not true then if we look at split times on a marathon why do get people get faster towards the end mm -hmm. i was like oh shit <laughs> my head was just like boof because at that time, I, before I was like, oh, it's all fatigue, build up a fatigue. You get so much fatigue, you just can't go anymore. And then you look at the actual data and I'm like, shit, he's, he's not wrong. Like people do get faster before the end. Definitely. And then they, they did some interesting studies where they kind of moved the, the end or they left it ambiguous and you, you see things uh, shift around. Um, so a great book on this too is by uh, Alex Hutchinson called Endure. Yeah, I interviewed um, him actually. In the oh, podcast. I'll have to go back and listen to that ago. one. Yeah, yeah, super fascinating because he did 
a really good job for, I think, a mass book of getting the science right, but having really good stories in it. Totally. And man, like what you see is I, I think the, the theory is correct. The, the, the really hard part is you'll never be able to prove or really disprove it, right? right? You're only going to be able to show these small subsets and then it's figuring out what is the rate limiter per individual, right? Because you've got some people, let's say it's very mentally tough to use a generic overused word, but their VO2 max is out of a field mouse. It's, you know, 25, you know, megs per mil per kg. They're probably not going to win any marathons, right? They're not going to break a two hour marathon. You may have other people that very, very high VO2 max, for example, and it's endurance is more than VO2 max, but and they just don't like training, right? I mean, how many, I mean, I've seen some elite human beings who just didn't want to train. And I'm like, dude, you lift way more than me. You don't lift ever in your life, but you just don't care about it. So right. at some point, you're probably not going to be an elite athlete. You can probably do pretty good, right? So I think it's, it's always going to be a combination. And even in the physiology, there's super interesting stuff where some people who may have a super high VO2 max, like elite level VO2 max, but their local extraction isn't very good. So they're limited by that, or they can only work at a lower percentage of it. So someone else is actually faster than they are. Even their VO2 max is even lower, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this complex multi-pronged approach. And then like some of the stuff they did with uh, removing pain sensation, right? I think it was doing interthecal delivery of fentanyl. So just basically putting opioids in your central spine to, you know, take out sensation so you don't feel stuff. Those people will sometimes go so hard they wreck themselves, mm. you know? So it's, you know, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And I think it's something we're going to probably spend a lot of time trying to figure out. Um, and then you look like you're familiar with this for ultra endurance events. Uh, the guy who lived next to me when I did my undergrad was Scott Jurek. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And so some of the stories he tells about, you know, running the, the bad water race and just, you know, how mindset. And I think going back to even identity plays such a, a massive role in it because it, to me, it like high level endurance, especially ultra endurance performance is, is just at some level, it's all about pain management, totally. right? You could be the elite of the elite and it's, it's just going to be hard and it's going to suck. Like none of those athletes are like, Oh yeah, that was fun. It's like, no, <laughs> but some people do better. Some people don't do better, but I think there's certain aspects of that. We're still trying to figure out. And if you talk to some of the higher level athletes and I get your opinion on this too, is that they interpret pain as just a sensation and they'd have less of the baggage associated with it. Right. So when people are listening, they think, Oh, if I have pain, that means I'm injured. Not really. Right. You have an increase in nociception, but it's to protect you from potential injury. Um, and I, so that all gets like, like thrown in there on top of everything else too. Yeah. Yep. I, so I wonder like with this, governor theory like how much of it is how, how many people could even know like could even get to that place because i right. i've had so many first time i claimed 300 pounds i thought it was 295 for example nice. um, i had failed on 300 <laughs> a ton of times um and so there's there was that that and then i had a 50 miler in um was it washington dc super hot i was dehydrated like i was a mess i was falling apart um, and at the end, I, I just wanted to be done. And I ran the last two miles under a 715, um, which so 49 and 50, right? Like, Oof. and I was wrecked. Like, I mean, I was at one point sprawled out at an aid station, like just <laughs> trying to figure out how to move. Um, and so I, I almost just wonder like how many, like the, the body can just go so much further than we think that it can. Um, I just think about, I have so many memories of being in an ultra marathon and just hitting this moment of just such complete failure. Um, thinking of my first hundred, I had um, stress fractures in both feet and, oh. and and I was like diarrhea. I was like, I had taken in too much salt. I was puking and, and like, I still went another 30, 35 or 37 miles, something like that. Oh. So, so I, I just wonder like, yeah, I think to your point, like, how could we, 
how could we even actually know like what at some point I think physiology and psychology just cease to be different. Yeah. And I think that the more you're pushing to those ends, you're, you're just getting right to the razor's edge of, of both. Mm -hmm. If you go back and you go, okay, so how is the body wired? Your body is wired for survival, right? So to some degree, how much even consciously is it going to let you push yourself so hard that you would destroy yourself, especially in something like an endurance event where it's a constant decision to put your next foot in yeah. front of you. Yeah. It's one thing to make a dumb decision and blow your back on a deadlift. I, you know, that I think is a little bit different, but right. especially That's with true. like the endurance stuff of just, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. And I do think that part of that is trainable, right? I mean, I even know just from doing a 2k on the rower, like right now, if you said, go do a 2K on the rower, I could do it, but my time wouldn't be that great. And it's probably not because I don't think my physiology is that far off. It's literally the fact that I'm just not at a mental place where I've had enough practice to suck that hard for seven minutes. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know I'm just not there. <laughs> right, right. I think there's that component too. And that's, that's short. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you can teach yourself to suffer in that way for sure. And I'll, I noticed that now I don't even go anywhere near Metcons really, but like, I just remember, um, leaving CrossFit for, you know, eight months or something and going back to it. And just that feeling oh. of just, you know, I'm still lifting, I'm still running, but for whatever reason, just not, not exercising that sort of final gear in a, in a Metcon, like just wasn't there for me, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And there's even like some heinous things that you've done that maybe you just didn't ever want to repeat. Like I did the old, um, does it the strength, strength challenge chest they used to have for the RKC, which is a max, uh, the elite was a max pull-ups with 20 pounds, one RM deadlift, and then kettlebell snatches with a 32 kg kettlebell for five minutes. Ugh. And I remember doing the snatches with the 32, I got like 64 or something like that. And I was like on the ground, like I was wrecked for like two hours after that. And ever since I did that, and this is probably six years ago, I've never done it again. Cause just the thought of doing it is just so horrible. I'm like, no, that sounds horrible. I never want to do that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, how often we just go, yep, that was horrible. I'm, I opt out. I'm done. I'm not, not doing that again. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then that really goes into the story that you tell yourself, like, especially exactly. when it comes to 100%. endurance. Yeah. Um, I, I found it's like, it was something I always told all my endurance clients, especially people that I was getting ready to train an ultra. It's like, listen, if you're looking for reasons to quit, you're going to find them. Like, oh, yeah. I promise you there's a million <laughs> and everything's going to hurt. You know, things are going to be failing. Like there's, there's just so many. Um, so it's sort of a decision before you go into it of like, what is, you know, in the military, we would call this go, no, go, go criteria. So like when you're planning a mission, at which case would you abandon the mission, right? Like maybe this engine fails and then this happens and whatever. So in that scenario, you, it would no longer be worth it. And I would always tell people like when you're going into these 50, hundred mile races, like tell, like really get clear on what, when it would be worth it. Because if you make that decision in the heat of it, you, you might regret it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's, one of the little unwritten rules I have for doing stuff on the, the roar of the concept too, is if I program a time or if I program a duration on it, then I have to finish that duration. So if I program a 2k, a 1k, a 5k, whatever, unless I think my back is going to completely explode, I have to finish it. And even if my time is just dog shit, uh -huh. like I've been in Costa Rica a few times and I've just fallen off of the rower horrible time, but I finished it. The only reason I do that is because I don't want my brain to have practice having an out. Totally. If it's a practice session and it's something that I'm just going to see where I'm at, cool, I'll just put in a time or I'll just hit just row. So I have the option ahead of time to decide what path I'm going to go. But once I go down this path, then I will, I have to finish the path because I don't want the practice of, oh yeah, I'm doing a 2k test and man, I can already tell my time's not going to be that good. So I'm just going to quit now. It's like, oh, that's, 
That's just so dangerous, I think. <laughs> yeah, it has nothing to do with the day, and it's all about the pattern, 100%. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you're, like, going down a dangerous road if you cannot finish workouts. Right. Yeah, Right. Totally. It's like, and, and I'm not even going for performance. It's like, I just have to finish. It could be, you know, barely getting the thing to my chest, but I have to finish just because I, I'm trying to eliminate that as a possibility right so it's just like it's a go no go that okay that's definitely not a go so the only way is through it's just okay let's try to figure out how to make the through not as bad right 100 percent. yeah man well i appreciate you um sharing this with my audience and, and oh thank you so I much for having me i appreciate forever. all the good questions yeah so uh for people that are listening to this and want to follow along with you support what you're doing or are interested in your flex um metabolic flexibility sir what's the best way for them to follow you yeah, so best place is probably a couple of things. Uh, the main website is MikeTNelson.com. Uh, the main side to get on the newsletter, which is where most of the stuff goes out, is FlexDiet.com. F-L-E, I can spell, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. So FlexDiet.com, go up to the wait list. You'll be able to jump on to the newsletter there. And then I'm doing a little bit more stuff on Instagram. You can find me there at Dr. Mike T. Nelson, D-R-M-I-K-E-T-N-E-L-S-O-N. I will uh, link all that up in the show notes of this episode. And just to second that, um, you are sharing some really cool stuff on Instagram. It's oh, actually great you. to see something that like benefits me in some way <laughs> rather than oh, yeah. well, most can, of that platform. You can thank our friend Jess for that. It was her suggestion. So I'm like, okay, whatever whatever you want just like yeah you should do this i'm like okay so just wrote out a bunch of stuff and yeah so it's been super helpful <laughs> cool thanks so much man i appreciate it thank you appreciate it